0: Welcome to Thursday Night Live. (laughs) Tonight we're going to do it a little bit differently. I'm going to speak for a few minutes and then we're going to have Q&A. The intention for tonight's um, Dharma talk, or I would say dialogue or conversation, is about how to continue to practice, how to bring... Uh, the practice into your life as the title suggests, your life is your practice. And so just thinking about it from that, that point of view. It's nothing like being mindful, especially when you know you're mindful, being unmindful. <laughs> so let's start over again, don't wanna really <laughs> So, so happy to see you all. And I have to admit, I, I, I brought some reinforcements with me. Uh, they're in the back. Uh, the, uh, my um, monastic friends here. Yeah, so we, we, were, we were kicking it a little bit before. we <laughs> 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 uh, So it's, it's interesting. It's been an interesting day because I, I was involved. I was speaking to a friend earlier today um, and she's an amazing woman uh she her name is bob smith and she's developed all sorts of things we have a lot of things in common she she got into recovery and she has an organization called uh peaceful life i mean peaceful mind peaceful life so she's doing a lot of teaching uh, mindfulness taking it into different communities and and such and i interviewed her today and it was interesting how much we had in common how much she was in line with our theme about your your practice is your life and i like to read it's called the master of the art of living and it says it says a person who is a master in the art of living makes little distinction between their work and their play their labor and their leisure their mind and their body their education and their recreation their love and their religion they hardly know which is which they simply pursue their vision of excellence and grace and whatever they do, leaving others to decide whether they are working or playing. To them, they are always doing both. So I think that that aims at what we're talking about here: having everything be all of a piece, or have everything, uh, everything be be connected and not being separate. So I was sitting here and I got a a little inspiration, practicing moment to moment. Thoughts are things, they have consequences. So even though we say, okay, this is practice and this is daily life, it's all practice. It's all practice. And in athletics, we have this process where we talk about learning, practicing, and performing. And I think we can apply that to this, but instead of learning, practicing, performing, we can say learning, practicing, experiencing or learning, practicing and practicing because (laughs) one of the standard answers I I learned as a teacher and it was my fallback. When someone would ask me a question, I would say more sitting is required. (laughs) So that was, that's how I would open it up. And so I don't wanna get carried away. I just wanna talk a little bit, but I just want to think about that because the way we do it in athletics and I wanna make it uh, the distinction and athletics, you usually have a, a game or a season, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Life, I think, we don't really remember much about the beginning or the middle, and we might be focused on the end most of the time. But the fact of the matter is it keeps going, it keeps going. And so how do we develop a way of, of relating to the situation and really understanding where we're going, where we came from, and, and that sort of thing, so to me it always comes back to the now and that's the only time we have and we can look at it this way, so we're making mistakes or we're moving along and so we're learning, we learn some concepts, then you practice them and then you have an experience, and then that experience gives us the opportunity to go back and learn something else and then practice that and then whether we call it practice or experiencing or performing, it's the same thing. So it's this cyclical process of continuing to master the art of life. And Sigmund Ford, he talked about psychoanalysis as being this process that allows people allows one to work, love and play at their highest capacity. And so it's not like we're going for that, but on another level we are trying to get more and more aware, more and more present, more and more uh, wise. And so I like to start off from Buddha nature, or the masterpiece within. And I think one of the things that's helpful is to get clear about what are the things, what are the obstacles, or or what are the the, um, opportunities that are going to present themselves to us. So I want to read something from Marianne Williamson, and she says, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? You all must have told them about me. Um, <laughs> let me see, actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, you are playing small. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightening about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, all as, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of a God that is within us. Of course, we could use whatever terms we like. It's not just in some of us. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And so that is, you know, if we take that in, in mind, uh, that makes sense in my own experience and so this process is really about how do we develop this ability to observe experience in a way where we can learn from our experience and continue to adapt or change what we're doing so that we we become more more present or the Buddha talked about it this way. He said, I teach one thing and only one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And his motto is, he says, do good, avoid evil, and purify the mind. I like to use mind heart." So even though we don't know which part of the practice we are practicing, each moment we have a thought, that thought has a consequence. Even each moment we have a mindset, that mindset has a consequence, especially when some word, thought, or deed comes out of it. So it's not to frighten us, but it's to say, maybe we need to expand what we call practice. And I think we did that with our title, Your Life Is Your Practice. And so that's a nice idea, but how do you do that? And so tonight's conversation is, is gonna be geared in that. And so maybe part of the conversation is to talk about what we've been learning all week and how, how we're gonna bring that home with us. And if I was to make a title of the talk tonight, it would be Home Is Where the Heart Is. And so when I was in Hong Kong in the 1990s visiting a friend, it's the first time i ever been out of the country. I had to get a passport. And uh, it's interesting because when I did the three month course, my family, you know, they weren't into this meditation stuff. So I was doing meditation and doing Tai Chi. So they called me Kwai Shai Kang, which was the guy from, um, from uh, Kung Fu, because they didn't know how to deal with, you know, okay. I don't know what dude is doing, but, you know, the only thing we can know is what's happening here. So anyway, so I I go to China, I mean, uh, Hong Kong, and I'm out there and I'm doing Tai Chi and I'm going to the monasteries and everything. And I felt like I was home. I said, oh, I'm in a foreign country. What's this feeling at home about? And I reflected on it. Of course, I could go one way that says, well, maybe in a past life I was... uh, You know, I I was in China when I was a martial artist. Uh, I know I have warrior energy, so I've been a warrior many times. Or maybe it's just that my heart, where my heart is, is where my home is. And maybe that's a choice. And maybe this practice is about training the heart and mind so that it's at home wherever it is or wherever we are. And so I like to... to think about it that way. And to, to kind of open it up, I have a couple other things here I wanted to read. Because um, some of the challenges we have, because I think it's important we talk about it, is, is that we're living in a world where we know there's impermanence, but we have impermanence on steroids right now. Because of this, Thomas Friedman wrote a book called Thank You for Being Late An Optimist Guide to Thriving and and accelerated change or something like that. And he talks about the fact that because of technology, because of uh, globalization and climate change, that things have accelerated exponentially and that it takes a certain amount of time for us to to adapt to that change. So by the time we adapt to the change, we're, we're still behind And so the only way he talks about doing that is to go inside into, from person to person, we have to be able to adapt and accept change. And I'm finally saying, and this is what I do and I try to uh, do this with people I work with, is we know change is gonna happen. So why not, instead of getting hit with the wave of change, why not ride the wave of that change and decide who we're gonna be in that change? So that's why it's important to know that Buddha nature or whatever you want to call that divinity it's always there, and if we can relate from that space and relate to things as they are now in a, in a way where we're doing good and avoiding evil. And in that process, we're continuing to purify the mind and the heart. And so he's talking about the fact that, that this is what we're looking at. So, and he's talking about the solutions. He says, I have been struck by how many of the best solutions for helping people build resilience and propulsion in the age of acceleration are things you cannot download but have to upload the old-fashioned way one human to another human at a time looking back on all my interviews for this book how many times and how many different contexts did I hear about the vital importance of having a caring adult or mentor in every young person's life how many times did I hear about the value of having a coach whether you are applying for a job for the first time at Walmart or running Walmart. How many times did I hear people stressing the importance of self-motivation and practice and taking ownership of your own career or education as the real differentiators for success? How interesting was it to learn that the highest paying jobs in the future will be STEMPathy STEM jobs? Jobs, STEMPathy, which is jobs that combined strong science and techno- technological skills with the ability to emphasize to empathize with another human being. How ironic was it to learn that something as simple as a chicken coop or the basic planting of trees and gardens could be the most important thing we could do to stabilize the parts of the world of disorder. Whoever would have thought it would become a national security and personal security imperative for all of us to, to scale the national to scale the golden rule further and wider than ever. And who can deny that when individuals get so super empowered and interdependent at the same time, it becomes more vital than ever to be able to look into the face of your neighbor or the stranger or the refugee or the immigrant and see in that person a brother or sister. Who can imagine the fact that the key to Tunisia's success in the Arab Spring was that it had a little bit more civil society than any other Arab country, not cell phones or Facebook friends. How many times and in how many different contexts did people mention to me the word trust between two human beings as the true enabler of all good things? And whoever thought that the key to building a healthy community would be a dining room table? That's why I wasn't surprised that when I asked Surgeon General Murthy, what Murthy, what was the biggest disease in America today? Without hesitation, he answered, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's isolation. It is the pronounced isolation that so many people are experiencing that, that is the great pathology of our lives today. How ironic, we are the most technologically connected generation in human history, and yet more people feel uh, more isolated than ever. This only reinforces Murphy's earlier point that the connections that matter most are uh, the the connections that matter most and are in most short supply today are the human to human ones. And so, I I mean, I could go on, but I think you kind of get my point. Um, And so it's an inside job. It's an inside job. So no matter what's happening out there it's what we do in here and that's what the practice is so moment to moment, how do we practice how do we bring the practice into other aspects of our, of our of our daily life so not like the poet said, you know not distinguishing between work and play just just to bring your whole being to bring your Buddha nature to whatever and to whoever you're engaging with and so I'll I'll leave it there, I know we talked a lot about establishing a place of work or establishing this ability to, to, to develop equanimity so that we can see things and we're not moving forward or, or away from or we're not spacing out, that we're seeing things and by seeing things with, with wisdom and understanding and with the attitude of compassion, generosity, uh, loving kindness, and that we're seeking wisdom or understanding, or how can I connect more with myself? How can I connect more with others? That by doing that, we're creating the possibility of being able to really make the the wisest choices, not make choices to create more suffering or help people to feel more isolated, but we can actually learn how to do this thing called life together in a way for the greatest good. So I think I've talked enough. And so I think there's there's enough stimulation for us to have a a &A. Q&A. And I got a hand over there. Yes? Yeah, can you talk
1: about hindrances to practice? I've been fighting a lot of sleepiness, and I think you had mentioned that was a hindrance. Yes.
0: Yeah, did you have a favorite hindrance in mind besides sleepiness? No, no, I'm not sure what the other hindrances are. Okay, so what are you experiencing the most? Do you have any uh, sleepiness? You don't have any greed or hatred going around in there? No. <laughs> <laughs> or ignorance? <laughs> I'll just mess with you a little bit. <laughs> sleepiness, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I, So it's interesting because I can go into the to the traditional teachings of, you know, of how you deal with the hindrances. And you know it's one of the foundations of mindfulness, if you could take them as mind objects, like the hindrances or whatever. The key to, to the Buddhist teachings, and this is where the being still and the equanimity comes in, because we have to learn how when the hindrance of um, sloth and torpor or, or sleepiness arises, that we know how to abandon it. Uh, how we learn how to let it go because it's very delicate. Because we say we want to, you know, we want you know, we'll say, okay, I'll deal with it, but we're trying to get rid of it before we really have accepted it. And so there's this little subtle thing of really accepting it, embrace, you know, embracing it to the degree we know it's there, and then learn how to let it go. So in the traditional teachings, there's there's this idea of if you have sleepiness, it might be because you didn't get enough rest, or it could be like when you're doing this practice that when you use these energies, when you're focusing and and you're doing this practice, you get focused so much that you have a lot of stability of mind, but not a lot of energy or effort. And so, the with the with mindfulness, mindfulness can help us just notice that okay, we're we're lethargic, and so we have to bring more energy in, and so so, it raises the energy level so that there's a balance between energy and and concentration, so that's one way of looking at it, but the another way of looking at it is that it's like we're we're not moving towards anything we're not moving away from anything we're just kind of spacing out I and mean, I think we spend most of our time there, and it's hard to distinguish that one because it it doesn't seem like anything it's just there, but you can tell because there's dullness in the mind and and you're not really, you're not really focused uh, or you're, there's nothing that's, you're saying, okay, yeah, let's go get that. It's like you're just sitting there and I'm just chilling, you know, and you're just chilling and, and it gets like that. So it's, that's when, you know, you, if you can get up and walk or move or, or change positions or just find something to be interested in or something to focus your attention on you know and I, I use this analogy with my athletes all the time I say okay it's interesting how we can be really tired until you know if you have a job or some place you don't like and then when somebody says um, you know well I, I use this example to say okay so I'm going to say to you that if you go into the dining hall there's a dentist in there waiting to give you a root canal okay so I guarantee you, you will procrastinate and you will find all kinds of reasons not to go in there. But if I turn it around and I read this, that some woman won $758 million in the Powerball last night somewhere in Massachusetts here. If I said you had a $758 million, I'm assuming you like money. Maybe you don't, but just assume you do, right? I guarantee you, you'll have energy. And you might not even touch the floor going into the dining hall. So what's up with that? That's the reflection. So, and I and I heard this comedian. He said, "If you have a hard time getting up in the morning, it's because you don't have a reason to get up in the morning, that motivates you, stimulates you, where you jump out of bed and you're ready to go." And that's that's the mind. And so sometimes fatigue. Sometimes it's dullness, or you know, we're not we're just spacing out, and we don't have anything that really. That's why connecting to the heart and doing something we're passionate about or if you really have a strong strong desire to do something, then that happens. I mean, then, then the energy is there. So the energy is there is having access to it and understanding that there's multiple ways of changing the mind, but, but the whole teaching is to see how it arises and, and see how to abandon it. Then the other thing about it is that when you have a wholesome mind state, if that has arisen, then the sleepiness can't arise. So if, if, you, if you are really engaged in something, you really fully engaged, mind, heart, body, and spirit, you're just really, really engaged in, in something, the energy will be there. And if you have the, the occasion to have worry and restlessness or like anxiety because you know, you're dealing with things you don't know about, you don't have to worry about not having energy. There's a lot of energy there. And then, then that's the other thing, so how do you lower it or how do you balance that? And so, I, I, especially in sports, we talk about how do you raise energy to meet the demand or the competition and how do you lower energy when you have so much energy that if you're playing a, a finesse sport or you're trying to make a move or if you're dancing, you got some rhythm. You're not like up there and you, you, know, you gotta be able, and that's why being in a body, we're teaching you, uh, this is what I call it, being in the body, your body will tell you when it's excess energy or when you're keyed up. And it will tell you when you're low energy, and then how do you key it up? And then something as simple as just just opening your sternum and letting that energy move, you know, or, or thinking about certain things or bringing to mind uh, some image. And so in the, in the text they talk about, and I, I don't think, um, they say in Thailand, what they used to do when people had sloth and torpor, they had to meditate on the edge of a well. Or practice in areas where there's live tigers. So we don't have to do that. We don't have any tigers anyway. So <laughs> but but you, you you understand what I'm saying. So and that's a question and we talk about it. So that's part of the conversation. Well, George, my energy is low, how do I raise it? Okay, let's talk about what are you interested in? Or or what are you doing and why are you doing it? So you gotta connect with your purpose. See, that's the thing that's so when we think about for the greater good. If we're thinking about how can I, like say if you have children or if you have a friend or someone, if you can find a reason to convince yourself that by doing this, it's going to help others. Sometimes it's challenging for myself, especially when I first started doing this, to do it for me, but I could do it for other people. And then I was also doing it for me, to be a service like, okay, and being in my pity pot. So why don't I get up and do something for somebody else? Make sense? Okay. Yes, Chris. So could you give me an example? Well, like, say you had to promote um, like a show or something that you were doing, and, and you know, what if you have to constantly kind of do that
1: kind of thing to, um, to make a living? Mm-hmm. And somehow that kind of requires this, there's always like a trap there, being attached
0: to, uh, okay.
1: to a sense of self that's kind of dangerous,
0: that can be yeah. dangerous. So the question is, how can you be in a in a vocation or a situation where you have to self promote without becoming conceited or yeah. or believing the hype. <laughs> or, or just following the ups and downs. Following the ups and downs. So it's interesting. So there's a basketball player. He's still alive. Uh, the The NBA uh, MVP trophy is named after him. His name is Bill Russell. He played for the Celtics, and he won like eleven championships in 13 seasons which is amazing and he was on some he was somewhere with one of his players John Hablachek, and a guy comes up to him because Bill Russell is about 6'10 and, and that means he's really tall right <laughs> uh, and the guy comes up to him and said, are you a basketball player and Bill Russell said no and then he walked away and then John said "Russ, why did you tell him you're not a basketball player and then Bill Russell said because that's what I do that's not who I am so you can do something and not be identified with it. And if that's the role, and if you take it not personal, it just comes with the territory. But it's even better when you really are passionate about what you're doing, and, and you believe that you're promoting it. And, and so this is interesting, because we have this idea that if we do this, then we're going to get attached to it. And when you were talking, Chris, I was saying to myself, well, if that was a problem, you already would be arrogant. You would already be there, but just being aware that it might be an issue for you, that's, that's wisdom. And then you, you check, you ask questions and say, okay, so you have to check. Am I believing myself, am I full of myself, or am I understanding that this is a role and that's not really who I am? I don't identify with it. I just just do it because I, I run into this with a lot of athletes, especially teams, because I have the opposite. I have somebody who's really, really good, but they're uncomfortable being selfish, But they have to be selfish to help the team. And so we usually talk about somebody who's full of themselves, but we don't always talk about the person that's not comfortable with the limelight. And and they, they do it for the greater good. They do it for the team. So they have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's the same with you. You're feeling uncomfortable and then you gotta ask yourself, okay, is this what I really wanna do? And if I'm gonna do this, can I bring my whole being to it and do it well without Without being identified with it, and and I think that's, you know, where the role can really protect you. But that's where you gotta, you gotta do that deep listening, and this is what's really helpful. When I talked about having energy, you and this is this is what a lot of people have said. But I remember John Cappadon saying it back at you know he says it all the time. Is you know, is it a job or is it a calling? Is it something that you're following, your bliss? Is it something you would do for free? And most of the elite athletes and elite performers, that's what they would tell you. They would do it for free because they love it. But because they love it and they're good at it, they get paid for it. And that's a byproduct. It's not so when your motivation is to get paid. Well, good luck with that one, because that usually gets in the way. But when you're byproduct is to be of service and to just express your passion that's a different energy and so so that's why when we do this looking at the motivation like chris is saying you know is this you know why am i doing this and you know there's a danger here how do i protect myself so i don't become what i'm selling so i don't get so identified with it that i start believing it that that's who i am And then that causes suffering because, let's just say you're a dancer or you're an athlete, you're going to get old and you're going to get injured. And that's not going to last. And when it's no longer there, who are you and how's how's that going to feel? And so that's why, you know, um, abiding independently without clinging to things is, is a really helpful thing. But while you're there, can you be fully there and not be identified with it? So that's a challenge, but it's a really good question, because I've gotten a lot of these questions in my interviews about, okay, so maybe it's okay for me to be myself here, but now when I go back into work or go back at home, it's a challenge to do that. (laughs) So that's something to work with, but if you're coming from the inside out, that's that's always helpful, and then we can manage from there, and so that's why we have these things like precepts. So that when we have these unwholesome mind states arise, that we don't act on them. And then, then we use wisdom, you know, right view and right intention, and, and looking and saying, what is this? So that we can, we can see the, the cause and then apply the solution to it. Usually, which is letting go, letting be, allowing. Because I would tell you, in this practice, I can tell you, working with a teacher, they're usually taking something from me. Oh, you like that? Give it up. <laughs> oh, um, I think you should teach George. Well, I don't. I don't want to teach. That's why you should teach. <laughs> it's paradoxical. It, it's you know. And but I trust them, and I say, okay. They say it's time to do it. Three months with you. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, I don't have any money. Oh, I'll give you money if you want to. Oh, never mind. I'll do it. <laughs> you know. But that. But that's it. You're going to get resistance. So to think you're not going to get resistance or you're not going to make mistakes—that—that—that's not the way things usually work. It's—and it's, if you do it on the first time, it's great. That's great. But most of the time, it's—that's why we call it right effort. You got to keep doing it. You make mistakes. You learn from it. You're learning, practicing. Nope. Go back. And learn some more. Practice. Nope. <laughs> keep going back. Keep going back. And then at some point, wow! I'm doing it or it's doing me, I don't know which is which, but that's usually the case. And so this is a this is challenge. So we can come in here like, oh, George is saying we gotta do 24 seven. Man, I get tired just thinking about that one. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's opportunities and you can. it's just like walking in the mist, right? You're walking in the mist, it's just a little bit, and then after being out there for a while, you get saturated. This is how this practice works, it's subtle. There's a lot of things that we've been doing that is what they call implicit learning or non-declarative learning, it's there, but it hasn't revealed itself yet. That's why this is a cumulative process, it's, it's like, like be like water, just keep moving, keep moving and keep uh, just seeing, okay, can I create space between stimulus and response, and okay, I, I did that one, well, oh, that didn't work, so back to the drawing board, okay, how can I do it differently? Why well, is reflecting after the event? What could I have done different? What was my mindset? Because that's usually a good giveaway. Because if I got on my hate glasses, like I say, you're all in trouble. <laughs> you're all in trouble. I'll be cursing you and doing all kinds of stuff. But if I got on the love glasses, which I do, then you're all the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> but you got Buddha nature. So it's not like I'm, you know, Then I can't even say it. Because, you know, I, I was going to say I'm not trying to be a brown nose here. <laughs> Because I do have a brown <laughs> nose. <laughs> so you might not be able to distinguish that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> but it's really like coming from the heart and saying, you know, because if I see your Buddha nature, I see mine. And when I can't see mine, if I keep seeing yours, at some point, I'm going to see mine. And so that's how we do it. We, we help each other when we support each other. We're interdependent. And so to the degree that we can help each other and we create a physical, ma- uh, um, critical mass, then now we're, we're into it. And so this is, this is how I see this, is we talk about how to do this and we talk about it and you get, you know, in the way the traditionally, the setting, the, the way the teachings talk about is, is good friends or teachers. And then, and then you have the Dhamma, you have uh, the teachings and then you listen to to the teachings and then you apply it. So this is all about this is a this is not passive, this is active. Well you have to take you have to have courageous, you have to take courageous initiative to see if this is true. So if you just sit back and say, okay, Narayan said that or Alexis said that, I'm just gonna take their word. No, we don't want you to do that. I don't want to speak for them, but but I am. <laughs> it, see for yourself. And Narayan said it, come and see. That's what it's about. Come see. Is this true? You know what? What mind am am I operating at? So we start to think of things. Well, why am I seeing things this way? Could I look at them differently? And 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 what's my intention? Why am I doing this? And and, and as Chris was talking, you start to go inside and say, What are you doing? And and Narayan knows knows this well. I was a financial analyst for sixteen years, and and I and in those days when I lived at the Cambridge Center. We had, it wasn't too many meditators, you know. So I had a half an hour uh, interview with my teachers once a week, and one day, I was working at uh, I was working at a uh, actually it was um, a high tech company, and I was a financial analyst. And I moved from one company, which was a military industrial complex. They were making gyroscopes, which that's what guides missiles and you know all of the. Um, f 16 all of those planes and the space shuttle and satellites, that sort of thing. So I went to high tech, and I thought it was going to be different, but wherever you go, there you are. And I was there, and I was still trying to do this financial analyst thing, but my heart wasn't in it. And so I, I come to the, um, my interview one, one day, and Larry says, what's going on? And I said, what do you mean? He says, you seem happy. I said, oh, I took a mental health day off. He said, you should make a habit of that. <laughs> And of course, as luck, luck would have it, a couple of weeks later, uh, I got to the point where I couldn't stay and I couldn't leave, and so I, so I, I left. And then I was able to start to think about, well, what do I, who do I wanna be when I grow up? And I think that's an ongoing question, and if I were to read more of what Thomas um, Friedman is talking about, he's saying we'll have at least five careers, but we have to become learners and we have to educate ourselves, take responsibility for our own education and our own resilience, our own ability to adapt to change, whether it's accelerated or not, because we know change causes suffering, you know, do could do the change. (laughs) And so we know that. So if we know it's going to happen and it's the nature, like the body's going to get old, it's gonna get sick, it's gonna die. There's no way around that one. You may not have had, you know, and it's, it's, you know, we got born and I'm not so sure we said, okay, I wanna be born, but we're born. We get old, we get sick, and we die. And so the real question is, we only live this moment. How are we gonna live this moment so we can let go? And what can we take with us when we die? That's a good one. Cause all them houses and all that other stuff, mm, Family, friends? I don't think so. Yes, sir, you had your hand up. Yeah. Yeah. um, I was going to be asking about aging, and um, Alexis said, ask the question sometimes, what are you resisting? Mm -hmm. And i found through getting lost on the trails and other sorts of confusing things that I've been resisting the evidence that I am aging.
1: Mm-hmm. And you say, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. And that's really where I'm at now. Mm-hmm. And I'm accepting this, but it is really hard. And I would like if you could make a few comments about that process of acknowledging that you're resisting these things, even though, you know, you you just really don't,
0: don't want to. You okay. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why do you think you're resisting it? Well, uh, because I love life. You know, I, I love life. And mm-hmm. I've always been curious and mm-hmm. engaged and love people. And um, sometimes uh, you know, it's not there for me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So being a senior citizen myself... Um, it's interesting We wake up in the morning and it takes a while to get going. So part of that's for my sports injuries and, and other stuff. But the mind, you can keep developing that. And maybe that's the way to go to let go of the body. Joseph Campbell talked about it in his series, uh, The Power of Myth," It was interesting because he had six episodes and in the last episode you could see his energy was way down, I could tell he was sick before I found out that he he passed away, and he and he talked about, you know, when you get older, he says, you can let it go just like a suit of clothes. That it's not who you are, it's the identification with the body, but if you look, if you look inside, even when I talk about that eye of the hurricane inside or that divinity, if you look in there, there's no place to be found. You can feel it, you you can know it, but you can't locate it, so, what if and this is what hans saoye said uh, the guy that came up with the whole stress stress of life he said the idea is not to add more life to years that's what you're talking about he says the key is to add more uh more m- more years to life he's saying the key is to add more life to years so maybe that's the way to look at it because there's this idea that you're going to lose something and it's interesting, because I, I work with people, and, and it seems like when people get confronted with death, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking of, um, what's his name, Oliver Sachs as one person, and he talked about how a, a lot, you know, he was, there was a lot of pain, but it, it was freeing as well. You know, and I, I use that with myself and my clients sometimes. What would you do if you only had six months to live? What would you be doing? And of course, the old uh, Scrooge, you know, uh, Christmas cow, it's about, okay, what do you want somebody to write on your tombstone? Or who do you want to show up at your funeral? And so it's, it's painful, but the only way out is true, is just to acknowledge it. And when you see yourself denying it, just know seeing you're denying it, you don't have to beat yourself up for it. You can just see how that's a cause of suffering because a big part of this practice is seeing how we cause suffering for ourselves. Yes.
1: hmm And I'm not I mean, I'm not a proponent of war by any means or anything mm-hmm. like that, but clearly, you know, World War Two it was right to step in, right? But I'm just wondering how like how do you reconcile the Buddha nature and because you can send love to neo Nazis and white supremacists all
0: day and it won't do you any you know, it won't solve any problem. How do you know that? That's a, how do you know that? I'm just saying, this is part of the practice. We have ideas about it, yeah. but, but we really don't know. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. But at the same time, is we make a, we make, um, that's what they do. They make assumptions about reality. And then they try to force it on, on you. And so what you're really saying, uh, do you have anything else to say along those lines before I answer? Yes. So the old Cherokee story about the grandfather talking to his grandson and says, there's two wolves inside of me. One is, we'll just use love and fear uh, for, you know sim- to simplify it. And he says, they're fighting this ferocious battle. And the grandson says, grandfather, which one will win? And he said, the one that I feed. So we have the seeds of both inside of us. And the question is, which one are we feeding? And so obviously, if you're a white supremacist and you want to restrict it and you want to blame and do all that other stuff, it's pretty obvious what wolf they're feeding. And, and what, uh, So us to be angry or to have resentment towards them, the Buddha had a recipe. He said, you, hit, you meet hate with love. Okay, Now, it's not meaning that you can't stand up and do things, but the danger is that we become just like them. And if we remember that they have the same capacity that we do, just like me, they want to be happy. They're just a, a little confused about how that's going to happen <laughs> or it. And it's And we're really talking about the mind state from which they are operating from. That's why we have right view. If you have a mind full of hate, mindful of greed, mindful of fear, mindful of resentment, and if, and if you start blaming, doing a blame game, it's some person plays a thing is a cause of my happiness, instead of saying, mm, go inside and you change your mind, that's on you, that's your responsibility, because you can see things differently, and so, we're dealing with this, and that's why, you know, some of the Brahma Viharis, is the one appreciative of joy. That's why we, you know, when your team doesn't win, the other team wins, or somebody you don't like, or somebody you're competing with does well, that jealousy is the poison. And so can we be happy for the other person even if we don't like them? And we don't like them, why? You know, what's up with that? And so your question is really valid is how do we deal with hate and how do we deal with, with people who are coming from survival or fear? And here's one thing that I, that I know. I was reading his book, The Biology of Belief. And in the book he said on a cellular level, a, a, a cell cannot be in a growth mode and a survival mode at the same time. So if you're in survival mode, you can't be in growth mode. So, if you're in survival mode, we're talking about the reptilian uh, brain. And it only does four things it fights or flees, forges for food, and reproduces. And anything that gets in the way of that is in trouble. That's the animal realm. And so that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a mind full of hate. And so the question is how do we re- relate to that mind full of hate? And, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, nonviolence, and you know, you can transform. Look what Gandhi did with in South Africa. So there's a lot of power in what we're teaching here. But at the same time, can we go into our wisdom and say, how do I relate to this person in a way where I, where I don't lose my humanity even though they're acting like an animal? And that's, that's, that's the question. And so you pray for them. When I first got in recovery, um, and I was divorced at the time and they told me to pray for my ex-wife. I wanted to smack the person. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't had contact with my ex-wife in over forty years and she's changed a lot. Because I pray for her and I see her I see her Buddha nature. I see just like me, she wants to be happy, right? And she's making choices that are that are keeping her isolated or, or keeping our relationship a certain way. So, and it's not my business. It's, you know, it's her, I'm responsible for how I see it. And so that's the question. So, we have to change this from, pers- from one human to the next, as I, as I read about each one of us. Can we take care of the world we're in, and can we bring more peace, more harmony, and, and the little peace that we have? And it starts with our own making peace with ourselves, as Titan Han likes to say. Yes. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And one I guess is talk somewhat last night, so I'm gonna focus on the second one, which all of you sooner or later mentioned. How to deal with shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because anger, hatred, you know, fear, I can find out, but shame make me weaponless. Mm. I I'm I'm staying hmm And even if I totally turn the volume off, it's still staring at and mm-hmm. it just makes
0: it so, so you want to talk about how to deal with shame? Yes. Well it's a it's um it's an energy, it's a it's a mind state, and it's a it's an identification with what happened. If you look at it this this way, it's like it's so one of the things we do sometimes is we don't take responsibility or we take too much. And so if someone says to us that, that we're bad and, and you know, shame on you and, and you feel shame because there's a part of you that, that's saying that you're responsible for what happened and you should know better and you should know better or you shouldn't be in that spot. And it's, it's like saying to a baby, you know, who's just walking and they, they fall or whatever, you know, it's like, you should know better. They've never been on stairs. They don't know what's happening. So on some level, and I know it's deeper than what I'm saying, but, but when we start to have some compassion for ourselves and we start to see that we're looking at things in a way that is, 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 is just one view of the situation, even though we feel it. And this is where it gets really delicate is because we feel it. We think it's real. And it's the more power it is is real. It's going to be hard, and and you know I can't get over it. And maybe the the what I see is like being in a net. The more you struggle, the more you try to get away from things. That's a that's aversion. It that causes suffering. And so on some level, this practice is inviting us when we're able to look at it and see, okay, uh, how am I looking at this? So something happens, and then there's an interpretation of what it means. That's why the mindfulness, and when we can see. We, if we do something, we don't have to identify with the behavior or what happened. We're going to make mistakes, and some mistakes, you know, somebody might die or something happens, and we can feel bad about it or have shame about it, but that doesn't, doesn't help you or the other person. It doesn't help anything. So it's like really looking at what is this, and why am I looking at myself in a way that causes more pain, and it's not, it's not who I am, and it's not the only way. To look at it, but it's an energy that we have to look at, and how do we embrace it but still make peace with it? So, you know, I've had a lot, of, a lot of shame myself, and 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 it still comes up sometimes. But it's really more about looking at it and saying that that's not I'm not identifying with. It's not who I am. I I didn't know better. Ignorance causes suffering. Just the way it is, and here's the interesting thing. So, if, like, say, if I look at the things that you're looking at the way you look at them, I would feel the same way. But then there'll be somebody else that has the same exact situation you have, and they have a different interpretation of it. So, what's the difference? It's the same situation. It's two human beings. It's your mindset or it's how you're relating to it. And here we're trying to. Teach ourselves how to have compassion and love, and um, develop enough understanding where we can relate to it in a way that that frees us, and then it helps us free others. Like like uh, Marianne was talking about. So if we deal with our shame in a way where we can not identify with it and just see it and say, you know, it was that's you know it was a nature of what happened. Uh, for it to happen, as bad as it was, if the conditions were right. It has nothing to do with I, me, or mine. And to the degree that we cannot separate that, because it's so in, entangled with who we are, we suffer. And so, so it's it's like okay, so let's look at it and realize no matter you know no matter what we experience, that's not who we are, but we identify with it and we say we should know better, and we have these opinions. And if we go down below it, it's just this, maybe it's when we were younger. Like for myself, I grew up in a a household where I took responsibility for everything. Something bad happened and it was like I'm bad or I was the cause of that or I should be able to control that. Some form of, and that's that's diluted. It's not, it's ignorance, it's not knowing and it's identifying, this is what the cause of suffering is. Ignorance, clinging to a belief or, or um, grasping at something. And, and so we gotta look and see how we cause suffering, how we identify with it and how it hurts. And so once we start to see that, then we start to see, oh, there's some space and that's not who I am. Like I used the example of Bill Russell, that was easy when it was basketball, but I could use anything, it could be shame, It could be hatred it could be anything and to the degree that we identify with it and we become entangled in it we think that that's us and it's not it's an experience so it's like we have an experience and then we take it on and say i'm I'm gonna hold on to this and i'm gonna live the future based on what happened in the past instead of being able to make peace with the past and look at okay um and i can't get into it a lot because we're out of time and plus this might be a little bit personal but from my own experience, um, and it sounds kind of quaint, but it's really powerful. It's just looking at how we suffer and how we're c- attached to it. There's some attachment there with the behavior, with the like experience and whatever. And even though it happened and it's real and you can't say it wasn't, but to the degree that we hold on to it and get identified with it, it causes suffering. That's what you're experiencing. That's what we all experience. Anybody else feel shame at one time or another? Okay. And so there's some things, like you say, why is there some things you felt shame for you can let go of and this one you can't? Or it's just challenging. If you say it's hard and I can't do it, then that's creating doubt. As I saying, I don't know, let me see. Let me be willing to give that up. And then we got to start looking at what's the payoff of not giving it up. So I think we're out of time. It's 8.20, well maybe we'll take one more. Yes? I was wondering, um, when you
1: encounter a feeling like that in person with someone, uh, do you have a recommendation of how to deal with it in that moment?
0: Yeah, um, make, okay, so so f- she's saying, so if, if I'm dealing with somebody and that shame comes up, how do I deal with it? Is, is that the question? How do you work through it? So that's interesting. Just saying how do you work through it could be a problem. Because when we're doing something in order to get rid of something, we have not accepted that it's there. And like the gentleman talked about denial, it's like we haven't really let it sink in or really feel it And and then talk about, okay, so it's nothing to be done, it's to be felt. It's to, be felt, it's, to be, it's to be felt. You know, that's why we say, what does it feel like in the body? So you give it the name shame, you're creating, it becomes a story. Instead of just an energy. It's just energy. Now, some people are going to get pissed off at me for saying that. But, but that's your choice. You don't have to, but that's, check it out. It's just energy. But then we identify with it, and we name it, and then we build self around it. And so it's like this is the whole. And say just like Bill Russell, okay, I'm experiencing shame. I am not shame, but when you say I'm, sh- I have shame, shame in my body. Then you're identifying it. You're taking ownership. If you say, oh, there's this feeling, or even if you say, oh, there's shame in me, and there's there's a famous line, in the Ten Commandments, when Moses finds out that he's Hebrew, and his brother or some family relative said, well, there's no shame. And being Hebrew, and he says, "Shame? What shame? If there's no shame in me, how can I feel shame?" So, so that's it. But then we got to look at at how we're relating to things, and it's it's very you know it's simple but challenging. It's just to let go, let be, just let it be an energy, and just let it process through. And I watched this this woman that wrote the book. This, my stroke of genius. She said it takes about 90 seconds for an emotion to process through. So we have something we feel, but what happens is we feel something, we get triggered and it's old stuff. And then then it's when it's really strong, that, that means it's been there for a long time and it's old stuff. And we have to have care and attention and not try to get rid of it because, okay, I gotta deal with it. No, I don't. I have to just create space and say, okay, to the degree you can hold it and be with it, fine. And then when you can't, then we gotta say time out and then you set it aside and then you you do something else. So it's not like it's, gotta, it's gonna have its own time, its own rhythm, but can we relate to it in a way where we can have space between stimulus and response. And when there's a lot of suffering, there's no space, it's just this, and it's just this clinging. And what we're trying to do is make a little space, a little space and ease. That's why the compassion practice, the loving kindness, the love that's that's the way to say you know that that masterpiece that's not who i am that shame is not me i it's i me or mine it's not who i am when i talk about getting rid of all that stuff it's not it's, whatever you experience is not you but we we attach with it and so if you can see how you're suffering by connecting and attaching to it then maybe that's the first step And so i you know. So I, I apologize if, if we, we're not able to go deeper. But this is this is the nature of retreats. Mm-hmm. It's like we run out of time, and there's times when we want to keep going. But we, I went 15 minutes over. But I'll take responsibility for that. <laughs> so did you hear that, Coach? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, and. Um, Happy trails, happy sitting, or happy sailing, I should say. Okay, thank you. So now we have, oh, this is interesting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.